So we'll be in the, the Psalm, Psalm 84. You can find your way there. Uh, we're going to chop that up in a few minutes. It's good to see everybody this morning. Um, I, I don't know where you are this morning, but I sense my need for the Lord this morning. That's just to be honest with you. I've been sensing it all week. Uh, how needy I am, as we just said, uh, as, as we just sang from our hearts and our head, how needy I am of the Lord. And you know what? That's the best place to be for our ears to be open. A needy heart opens ears. Picture your ears opening and being the, the portal, the door for which Jesus' hands through his word, through his Holy Spirit can get a hold of your mind and your heart. See, God is a, a, a beautiful surgeon. He sees our hearts perfectly. I want to pray before we get into the message today. A simple prayer. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are collectors of baggage inside and out. And we bring it all in this morning. The beautiful thing is you don't say learn how to deal with your baggage and then come to me. No, you say come to me. And let me deal with your baggage. Let me go into your heart. Let me be the surgeon, let me be the healer, let me be the Lord, let me be the supplier, uh, everything, God. We find everything in you, Lord. And so I pray, God, not just for um, the, the dividing of your word for our heads this morning, but I do pray, God, that it would reach our heart, God. It would, it would be knowledge and feelings. It would be knowledge and worship. It would be experiential because you are a living God. And you just didn't live when the writer of Psalm 84 penned this when he was needy, Lord. But you live now when we are needy. You are the God of all eternity. You know Chicago just like you knew Jerusalem. You knew Jerusalem just like you now know Chicago where we are. And so there is something for everyone who came today to this family of faith. There are things that you want to do within each of us, including myself. As I've been experiencing this week, God, we need you, Lord God. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us, God, in a way that provokes love in our hearts. It shows us your loving touch, God. Because not only is the place where you dwell lovely, but you are lovely. You are lovely. So lovely Savior, lovely Lord, lovely friend, lovely God, be, be the center of our delight this morning and massage our hearts, God, in your truth. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Well, I'm going to attempt to be, uh, play a little bit of charades. You guys ever play charades? Yeah, okay, everybody smiles. It has memories attached to it, I see. There's some nostalgia in the room. Charades, um, I'm going to attempt to be as good an actor as Deanna over here, all right? Um, but if I'm playing charades right now, what, what is in my hands? Come on, sign me up for a theater or something like that, see? I'm a professional actor all of a sudden. Rubik's Cube. Now, when I say Rubik's Cube... Name the three emotions out loud that it makes you feel. Go. Anger, 
Man, no joy, no, that game is fun. I heard frustration and anger. I heard frustration and anger. Now, have you seen the new school Rubik's Cube? I mean, Rubik's Cube, well, let me pause. Rubik's Cube, for, for anybody that doesn't know, but it seems like it's pretty much a pop culture item here, is a complex series of smaller cubes attached together that you can spin, and there's different colors on each side, right, made up by many little cubes, and you got to try to get those cubes together. The problem is, the problem is, is it's very hard, right? And once it gets messy, it gets harder, and the frustration and the anger grows. I confess I've never put one fully together. I usually hand it off to somebody else or throw it or I'm just done with it. I, I've, I've come to the place where I know that my brain is not meant for a Rubik's Cube. Now, saying that, I, I went onto Google Images and I looked up Rubik's Cube and I've seen these tournaments grow because of it, like people challenging each other. I've also seen the contraption grow where it's grown bigger and bigger, more and more complex. And then the timing and the record has grown with Rubik's Cube. Our heart is like Rubik's Cube to the infinite, most complex degree. And yet at the end of the day, it's also very simple. But there's only one person that can grab our heart on a journey and a walk with God and put it together. And not just once and be done with it, but keep putting it together. Jesus, when he left into heaven, he ascended into heaven after he resurrected from the dead. And he told his disciples, don't worry. I'm going to send a helper to you. And who's that helper? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's Holy Spirit that also inspired the writing of God's canon. The 66 pieces of different kind of literature that are his way to speak to us as individuals and the body. And his word, when we submit ourselves to his word, submit ourselves to the touch of the Holy Spirit who indwells each believer in Christ. He takes us day by day. If we allow him, many times he works even if we don't allow him. But it's better when we allow him to massage our hearts and its complexities into a place where life and our identity, and our emotions make sense. So when we say we need God, I want to just propose that picture to you today, that each of our hearts is this complex thing. And when we say, God, I need you, put me together. Well, that's the process of walking with Jesus. And he never says, oh, man, look at you. All your colors are messed up. You'd look too hard. I don't want to touch you. No, he says, come, man. Put yourself in my hands, into my word, into my truth, into my community, all the things that God uses by his Holy Spirit to work our hearts into a place where our identity, where our perspective, where our Monday through Friday, our Friday through Sundays make sense and we grow and becoming more and more like how he wants us to be put together. The Psalms are a powerful tool that God does this. Uh, Martin Luther called the Psalms a miniature, 
um, gospel and a miniature word of God. And what he's saying is in the 150 Psalms that were brought together into a body of work, you have poetry and songs and words that minister truth that in them you can find through their whole span without all the details of all the Bible, you can find the essence of God's story. You can find how men and women are broken, people are broken. You can find that there's a loving and redeeming God, that there's something called sin that needs to be taken care of, to be put back together. And you see then a loving, walking God who wants a relationship with us from now into eternity. You see all of that in the Psalms. And I would say, you know, even when um, Bill asked me, said, choose whichever Psalm you want. You know, I confess this may not be my favorite psalm because I don't know if I can choose a favorite. The psalms are like Spurgeon said. They are both words and wings. They are words that God gives us and wings of worship. They involve the emotion. They involve not just truth for the head, but they say, man, give me your feelings too. Give me your pains too. Give me the complexities of your Rubik's Cube. I'm not afraid of it. And I'm going to use my words. This is God speaking. I'm going to use my words and my truth. I'm going to use history and poetry and all and other people's lives, the writers of these songs, to minister to you where you're at. And see, this applied to people pre-cross, the Abrahams, the Moses, the the, the, the King David's, the, the, the nation of Israel, and it applies to people from the early church on, including us. See, the Psalms are a tool because they're God's word, and they were written through people, just like the rest of the word of God, to minister to us where we are. And so they are a tool that I would say in the devotional and the prayer and the daily life are one to be used often and over and over. And Psalms 84, I chose it because since I came to faith at 15, even before I came to faith at 15, Psalm 84 stuck out to me because to me, it boils down to the essence of knowing God. It really does. It boils down to the essence of knowing God and considering God, who he is, his presence better than anything else. And you say, how, I, you know, that, that doesn't explicitly, you, you're going to see here, it doesn't explicitly say the cross of Jesus Christ or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or it doesn't lay out exactly how the new kingdom will be from Revelation. Or it doesn't have the garden of even it. And that's true. It doesn't have it in detail. But to me, Psalm 84 has the essence of what it means to be loved by God, love God, and say, and return to that place day by day and say, this love from God is, is, is better than any other treasure. And to me, it's that love and it's that place that marks a person that follows Jesus. Now, the, the encouraging thing about that is that's in every season. And you're going to see that in this psalm. That's when you feel like it. Oh, how lovely are your dwelling places, oh God. And also the valleys of Baca where you're like, God, are you with me? God, I don't know if I love you. God, I'm loving a lot of other things beside you. God, I forgot what it means to dwell and delight in you. I don't know if you're here. I don't know if you're better than all these other things and the appetites of my body and the things the world has to offer. I don't know if you're better. And he says... Return back to my word and let me show you, because when you dwell in my word, you'll dwell, you'll let me dwell in you. You'll unlock the door of God's presence that dwells in you. 
And so that's my prayer for this morning. And now, this was a hard song for me to go into this week because, to be honest with you, I've been really struggling to trust God in this season of my life. I mean, it's been like a roller coaster. So this psalm has met me even before I knew it when I chose it. I didn't even know how I would preach it necessarily. And then God in the next like three or four weeks says, I'm going to show you how I'm going to preach it. You're going to preach it out of reality. And some of those moments weren't fun because I didn't even want to embrace the truth that was in here. But God used it to massage my own heart this week. So I very much preach to you in a common weakness. But I point to Jesus this morning because he's good. He's going to show us that. So let's read the first section, uh, one through four. Read along with me. And, you know, with the Psalms, it's very important to grab onto phrases that speak to you. Because I believe the Psalms are written in a way where they won't apply necessarily with. There is a clear message in the Psalms. Don't get me wrong. But they are written in such a way, kind of like a modern day song can impact different people from different angles. That's how the Psalms are. And so as we chop this up, I don't have only just one message from you. I'm going to make some observations. But I believe the Holy Spirit can meet you where you're at and teach you his word where you are. Section one, um, and these are naturally broken in three sections, and they end with the thing called Selah. And Selah is kind of a, a mysterious word. It's a word that has different meanings put together, but all it really means is, okay, stop reading, pause, think, and let it marinate. Don't just jump to the next section. So that's what Selah means. Um, And as you read the Psalms, and this will help even probably in the weeks to come as we go through the Psalms, Selah is just like, yo, slow down, slow down, right? To me, it's really cool because there is a little bit of a mystery in the Selah, and it was these, these songs were typically sung. They're like when the instruments keep going and you stop singing, and what you sung goes deeper into your heart when you think about it. So it's about meditation and thinking about the truth, all right? So naturally, there's three sections here. So let's let's dig into them. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So a point to be made, and I didn't tell Pastor Bill to to preface the sermon this way, but this is a point that connects to what he says. Our home is where God dwells. Where God dwells for the believer in Christ is our home. It's not just a geographic place. And as we read this song, we're seeing that this writer, whether it's the sons of Korah or it was for David or David influenced it, we see that the people that were involved in writing this song were on a journey. And really, home was where God was. In in our family, we like to say, because we've moved quite a bit around Chicago, we like to say, hey, uh, home is where family is. Because we don't know where we're going to live, right? But there's a sense that when you're with family, you feel at home even if the circumstances are different. Or it should be that way. With God, it's always that way. When we delight in him. And so, check this out. Um, God dwells. He used to dwell in a temple when this was written. He used to dwell in a city 
Well, at least how the Israelites understood it. But now in the New Testament, we look back toward it. And where does God dwell? In us, right? And I won't go through all the scriptures in that, but maybe that's an interesting idea you've never heard before, that God can live in a person. Maybe that's a new concept. I, I, I would encourage you, for what it's worth, explore the New Testament, the book of Matthew on, and see how many times God talks about wanting to live in people, not just a building. Because in our culture, we call things church, and we think it's like this, or we think it's a big cathedral. And God, like, buildings are great, but God doesn't dwell in the four walls of any place. He dwells now in his people. Um, just a side note, 1 Peter, 2 Peter um, are great places to look about how God dwells in people. Now, Old Testament versus New Testament here. Um, the Psalms kind of sits in the middle of those things. Um, was this David or was this the writers of the sons of Korah? Uh, was he just talking about going to the temple of God? I think when this was written, he was thinking about going to the temple of God, going to a place where he knew the temple of God was, where God lived with the Israelites. In the New Testament, as we, we just mentioned, he dwells in us. So how do we reconcile this? Well, it really doesn't matter. It's where God dwells. It's where God is. Human beings can find home, security, delight, the experiencing of God. So what do I mean by when I say it doesn't matter? Well, God made provisions, different kind of provisions to access his person throughout history. And so sometimes people are like, man, I went to church and I just didn't feel God. Or man, I went to church and I felt God. Or man, I uh, was alone, man. If I get in my prayer closet, that's when I really feel God. Or man, uh, like I always say, man, things are crazy in my house, man. I haven't felt God in a while. My kids are running around. Home is where God dwells. And that can happen in any place. God is not confined to a place. He offers himself to people. Uh, uh, we see this, too, in uh, a New Testament example that I think is really good to break out. It's, um, uh, it's found in the, the Gospel of John. You don't have to turn there, John 4, but it's the woman at the well, right? A woman that was running around, a woman that had a complex Rubik's Cube heart, Rubik's Cube relationship. She was in her sixth uh, marriage, basically. She had a complex heart. Jesus meets her at a well. And he talks about those people that can come to know God and worship him and find home in Jesus. He says this. Listen along as I read. The woman says, sir, I can see that, Jesus, you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on the mountain. Picture a mountain nearby. But you Jews claim that the place where we worship is in the city of Jerusalem. So you have two different people that say they Follow the same God, Samaritans and Jews. Kind of Samaritans were considered like half-breed Jews, not pure, and then the pure Jews. And they would argue over where, how can God be known? Where do you go? And this is, remember, this is Jesus has come. So this is where it changes things, right? And Jesus replies, woman, Jesus replied to me, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, Father God, neither on that mountain that you talk about nor in the city of Jerusalem. It's not, you don't worship me on a mountain or in a city. You Samaritans, this is Jesus talking still, worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. 
Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father wants, the Father in heaven wants. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship the spirit in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ will be coming soon. He'll he'll get here. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Think about it. He'll explain all how this works, how we can know God, how we can worship God, how we can know home in God, how we can be reconnected with God. He'll, he'll, He'll give us salvation, explain all this, how this works. And to this complex Rubik's Cube woman, he says, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am he. Jesus has made a way for us to delight, as this psalmist says, in him fully. When I read this section of the psalm, I I really boiled it down in my mind because there's a lot of different points here that you can start to tease out. But I said, man, if I direct my delight toward God and let him dwell in me, I unlock the the dwelling God has in me through song, through worship, through silent meditation, through the local body, through teaching. Um, Another way to put it is that when we delight in God and say, how lovely is wherever you are, God, how lovely is that place? Wherever you are, I want to be in that place. And God responds to us, as we see here, I'm in you. Each day we then have the, 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 the key, um, I'm using metaphors here, but the, the way to open up the delightful, lovely place of God. Let's use another metaphor. If you had the most beautiful room in your heart, like a house, and it had all locked doors, what would you want to do if a guest came in? You'd want to open it, right? You wouldn't want to be in there. You would want to inhabit it. Or let's picture another room that has all the sunlight of the house. It's the main room that will cast light into all the other rooms. What would you want to do to those doors? You would want to open them up, right? Let the sunshine go into all the rooms of the house, right? Jesus wants to live in every room of our heart, every aspect of our life. Not just Sunday, every day of our life, he wants to be the lovely inhabitant. But we're good at shutting doors. We're good, we're good at saying, Jesus, I like you. Uh, you can stay in a sala in the living room, but uh, I'm going to close this door because I'm a little ashamed of the things over there. He's like, man, let me shine light on that. Let me clean up that room. No, 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 no. I'll clean it up and then I'll, I'll show you. Right. Ah, this is how it is when we have guests. Right. We apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And and, and what's funny is that the guests really don't care. Right. When you come over, you're just happy to be invited and be with the people. And yet the people, myself and my wife. Right. Sorry. We say, man, I'm sorry, man, that we got three kids and it's just messy and da da da. And and the the guests are like, let us just be with you. It's okay, You know, Jesus wants to be in every heart in every room saying it's not in a temple, it's not in a mountain. You every day can claim my inhabitants because I dwell in you with my spirit. Don't shut the door on me. Don't push me out. And man, I'm really good at that. 
But this is where God is gracious. He keeps says, man, keep directing your delight toward me. Direct your delight towards God and let him dwell in you. Now, just just to be clear, something has changed. If you believe in Jesus Christ, man, his spirit is going to stay in you. And that's a beautiful thing. No matter how ugly your rooms get, he's not going to be like, yo, this place is trash. I'm out of here. God does not leave the houses or the hearts that he's purchased. Oh, this is dirty, man. This is squalor. This is, ugh. Oh, you guys are too dirty. Let me get out of here. He doesn't do that. But so, so the spirit of God will dwell in his people, even in local church bodies that can get pretty nasty themselves. Like nasty individuals compile and make a nasty church body, right? We see this in 1 Corinthians, right? We see this in the modern day age. We see this in seasons of the church. We see it when we bring our nasty into the church and see how it impacts other people in a nasty way, right? We see that also being indwelled by the spirit of God, we can also do a lot of damage, or we can also clutter up our rooms with a lot of nastiness. Does this make sense in this metaphor? But God still says, open up your door. There is an experiential sense of being filled with the Spirit. We're commanded in the New Testament, be filled in the Spirit. If we were always just on cloud nine, 100% filled with the Spirit, never sinning, right? Then I don't think we would be commanded in the New Testament to say, hey, every day, every moment, you need to go to God and say, man, God, fill me because I'm filling myself up with junk now. Now, there's a very real experience of God that is attached to going to him. And there are very real consequences for when we say, "Eh, nah, no, no. And you keep pushing back the dwelling spirit of God. He's not going to leave you. But when you do that, you make your flesh grow. What I love about this um, in this first section, check out what the, the, the psalmist says. He says in verse seven, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, in verse two, my soul longs, just faints for the courts of God. My heart and my what? Flesh. Sing for joy to the living God. God is so powerful, and when you praise him and direct your delights in him, he will take your still sinning flesh, your appetites that want something else, and he will take the spirit that lives inside of you and combine them so they're not fighting each other. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever experienced the moment when you are walking with the Lord, you have confessed your dirty laundry and your dirty clothes, and you've let him clean up your house, and you overwhelmingly get filled with a joy that says, how lovely you are, my God, there's nothing more beautiful than you. Well, this is worship. This is true worship. This is what he told the Samaritan woman. Hey, Samaritan woman, there's a time when you won't run from man to man trying to fill up yourself. There's a time when you won't have to hide from society because you're so ashamed. And that time is here because I'm here. See, where Jesus is, he combines our flesh that struggles to live for God with his powerful spirit. And when we give ourselves over to him working in our life day by day, he will bring our flesh, our appetites, and our spirit, our heart together and bring us to be the worshipers he desires. The houses that house him. The, the, uh, and that will flow out to other people, right? Are these pictures making sense? It really matters. 
not just for this psalmist and not just for the old school Israelites, but for his church today to be in a place, to fight for a place of saying each day and moment by moment throughout the day, God, I need you. God, I need you. And, and that I can't even do with words. That's why I'm using movement up here. This is uh, his whole flesh is saying, God, I need you. God, I'm on the floor because I need you. God, I'm on my knees because I need you. God, I'm wrestling with you because I need you. My whole flesh needs you. Help me. Inhabit me. Show me that you're more lovely than any other thing. That's the essence of what the psalmist is saying here. And so I pause to say, if you feel dry today and you feel like doors are shut, if you feel like it's been a long time since you've been in this place, this is not just the motion. This is the knowledge of Jesus is inhabiting Holy Spirit that is available for you. If you believe in Christ to live in all of you. To live over your relationships, to correct the mess that we get ourselves into, to forgive the mess we have. If you confess your sins, he is what? Faithful to what? Clean you up. Plus, the way God the Father wants to see your house is that it has Jesus' name all over it. And Jesus is the perfect one. So whether OT or NT, whether the writers of the Psalms or anything else, we look to the same person to inhabit us and say how lovely you are. How lovely you are. As Augustine famously said, he's a church leader. He said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And to me, that's the essence of walking with God. It's the starting place. It flows to a lot of other things, your relationships, your decisions, your finances, the way you interact with the body. Another side point here, it's to be taken, is that the local church is really important. It's not just to say that God fills our individual hearts and you can live your individual walk with God. Actually, the most saddest cases I see of brothers and sisters in Christ getting really off in their life, their, their walk with the Lord, is when they disconnect from where the, the Holy Spirit also is, which is in the local churches. It's in the local church. We need one another. Let's keep trekking as this is a journey. Um, section two, verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion as they go through the valley of Baca. They make it a place of springs. The early rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. There's a lot I would want to sit on here. There's two points I want to make. Verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca. The valley of Baca was the valley of tears. It was literally a very dry desert before they got to the city of Jerusalem that had trickles of springs. Very little water. Very desolate. The last leg of the journey, that place where all the kids are like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I hate this trip. I hate this journey. And we all feel that way walking with Christ sometimes. We also have situations that create these valleys of dryness, these valleys of, of Baca, these, these places that don't seem ideal. I point us back to the first psalm when it says, the person that plants his tree by streams of living water will bear fruit in and out of season. Its leaves will stay green. Even if there's no fruit, it's alive. And then there will be seasons of fruit, right? The same principle is here, is that as you walk through dry places, it is not the circumstances that define your delight in the Lord, it's not your circumstances that define your love for the Lord, but we learn to find that our delights and our love come from an inner place. They come from going 
to God. And so if we direct our delight toward God, he gives us strength. If we don't direct our delight toward God, we become weak. It's a a funny connection, right? You You don't think about delight and desire connected to strength, right? But let's think about Proverbs uh, 5 through 7 when it talks about the young man chasing after prostitutes, right? One of the lines that it says as this young man chases after prostitutes and tries to find his delight and desire in uh, women that are not his, right? A woman that's not his, it says it. What does it do to his strength? It saps it. And this is just a picture for all sin. Greed, selfishness, self-sufficiency, as we're going to see. It saps us of our strength. See, we are not designed to be independent. Let's write that down because our whole culture says, Bill, you better be the best Bill or else you fail in life. And that comes, the devil tries to accuse us with that all the time. It's a cultural lie. Hey, you be the best person you can be and then you'll be successful. No, 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 no. God says you be the best son and daughter by coming to me. You're designed to be dependent on me. And through this, I'm going to give you strength. Now, let's talk about uh, let's talk about when things go bad. Where do you usually lean? I just heard Alistair Begg, another preacher, say this. When you are alone, where is the trajectory or where does your heart slide? Does it naturally slide toward dependence on Jesus? When you're alone, don't front. When you are alone, where does your heart slide? Does it slide toward other things, toward fantasy, toward self-sufficiency, toward I got to work harder? Toward, man, I messed up. I better work harder so I can get forgiveness. Or does it slide toward, let me receive from God. Let me cry out to God. I see my need for God. Does it have a trajectory or a slide toward God? Well, let's be honest. Where does the heart typically slide? It slides toward self, right? It's the pendulum that swings us this way. But it says right here that our strength for trials, for our valleys of baka, for our our valleys of weeping, for our valleys of trials, whether inside or out, comes from delighting in God, crying out to God, not sliding toward our own self. Put it this way. I love how Jorge always says it. You can't pick yourself up. You cannot pick yourself up. I cannot pick myself up. Fight the culture lie and the fleshly lie that says, you got to do you. You got to pick yourself up. This is the law. In Galatians 5, it also talks about we're not sons of the law or daughters of the law, which is work your way to being strong. While you're walking through the valley, show how great a warrior you are, a great a journey. Oh, look at this guy, man. He can trek through the valley of Baca and, man, he's strong. Nah, that's not God's way. It says we're sons of the law of the free woman. And and what that means is that we can receive grace. We can go to God for everything we need, forgiveness and everything for the journey. And he'll give it to us. He wants to give it to us. Another thing to point out in verse six is that this will fill you up with, I love the picture of water. You ever been hot? You need water? There is nothing like when you drink water and you are parched, right? When you're at the point where you're like, no, soda, uh, no, 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 don't give me any of that. Give me water, right? What happens is you usually say, you want some? And that's what happens in the local church. And Edgewater, this is a point for us. Man, our daily lives, trekking through Baca or the valley or trekking through the mountaintop or the jungle or wherever God takes you, 
really matters with how the water then flows into our family here. Because if we're experiencing good water from Jesus, strength from him, we also will give it to someone else who needs it. We don't live individual church lives. We live, we live in a family. It's a family of faith. And it works like a family. Imagine a, a, a mother or father that drinks good water and doesn't give it to their kids. That's some messed up parents, right? They see thirsty kids and they say, I'm not going to give it to you, right? Well, think about your walk with this. Your, your walk with the Lord, and there's grace here, it will give water to everybody else in the family here. It will give water to your communities if you're experiencing that water yourself. You'll have pools instead of just little trickle. So strength to strength. Another point here that I want to point out, uh, this stuck out to me because I've been in the Old Testament and the story of Abraham and connected to that is Jacob. And verse 8 says, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of who? Jacob. Now I confess, when I usually see this, I just blow right past it. Oh, they're just naming a patriarch of the faith. Jacob came to know God. Jacob was a self-sufficient man. And Jacob tried to do everything on his own. And he kept getting fooled. He got two wives out of it. He got a wife, a wife he didn't want. It all came to a point where God wrestled Jacob and he, he broke him. And so this really stood out to me because in our, in our time of need, it's not about us walking on our own two feet. It's about God letting us, giving us a limp like he did Jacob And say, now depend on me for where you limp. That's actually the stronger man or woman. The one that gets broken by God. Let me me clarify this. The one that gets broken by God but is made whole because they actually see their dependence for God. That's actually a full put together person. And now we like to get the limp and then we like to act like we don't got a limp, right? And then God said, no, you got a limp. But look, this is where God gives us peace when we go to him and say, remember you gave me a limp. Remember you showed me I was needy. So be my crutch. Be the strength in my weak leg. I picture Jacob all the rest of the days of his life saying, God, you're the God of Jacob, right? You're the God of this. So I need your strength. But that taught Jacob to, to, uh, to lean on God. And specifically here, an indicator or a litmus test of us leaning on God Man, it is prayer. It is prayer. Even more so than how much you study the scriptures, which is extremely important. How much you serve in the church, which is extremely important. But it's the family of faith and it's the individual walking in faith that prays, that tangibly shows, man, I need you, God. Remember what Jesus said? Who's better, the Pharisee that's like, oh, God, I've been keeping all your laws, right? Or the sinner that's like, man, look at me. God, I'm horrible. I need you. Which is the better prayer? It's the one that's limping. It's the one that's crying out saying, God, man, I need you. I'm a sinner. I need you. And this applies to us all the days of my life, all the days of our life. My grandfather who passed away, not just recently, but my one before on my father's side, told me something that kind of shook me before he died. We were in Florida, and he told me, I remember my father said, man, how have you been doing with your walk with the Lord? And he was in his 80s, and he says, it gets harder and harder. I was like, don't tell me that. (laughs) Like, don't tell me that. No, what do you mean? And he said, because I have this thing in me that continues to want to try to say I don't got a limp. 
but I have to keep learning to lean on God. So that never stops, whether we're teenagers coming to faith in Christ, middle-aged, or elder saints. Leaning on God is the way that we walk with God. And an indicator of that is, and this is not to say, have you been praying? How many times have you been? Is there a state of prayer in your life? Is there a, I like the word culture. Is there a culture of prayer in your household or in your life? I, t- I mentioned before that I've been struggling to trust God in certain areas of my life. And I notice when I go to bed, this is going to give me away to my wife. Sometimes to say, uh, let's pray. Why don't, why don't you want to pray before we go to bed? <laughs> and sometimes I don't even give an answer. But usually what's inside is that I don't want to go to Jesus. And it just shows we have to learn to, man, give it up and go to God. You can't do it on your own. We were not made to do it on our own. So it's not a thing of saying I'm weak or needy or just give me handouts. No, God is like we're meant to be two legs walking together through the valley of Baca, the valley of weakness, the valley of tears, no matter where you find yourself. See, limping to God, you limp to God in prayer and you're going to find your strength. Let me say that again. Limp to God every day. Praise him how lovely you are for for coming to me, God, and there you will find your strength. It says we go from strength to strength, which means it's not a one-stop shop. You can't just fill up your tank once and you're good for the journey. You got to keep going back because God does not want traditions. He does not want buildings. He wants human what? Relationship. He wants to walk with you as he walked with them in the Garden of Eve and how he will walk with us in the New Jerusalem. We're practicing that limp now. So limp to him in prayer. All right, lastly, let's go to the third section. This one is kind of like the treasury box. We've heard if we direct our delight to him, we unlock the dwelling that really is in us as believers, right? If we direct our delight, if we say, God, we delight in you, how lovely you are, God, then we allow him to dwell in our house, right? If we direct our delight in him, he will give us strength for each day. That's a promise. So we direct our delight to him. We direct our focus, our desire to him, right? And he helps us to walk in this life. And then you see that what what comes with that are a lot of gifts. You guys know that God is a great giver? None of us is a great giver. Some of us are better than others. But we all have this thing when Christmas comes that we want to get a good gift, even if we buy it for other people, we want to get something for ourselves, right? Uh, and then maybe that's the thing of maturity. But we, we love gifts. Well, check it out. With God, you get the perfect giver that when you go to him, you delight in him, comes all these gifts. He wants to give his children gifts, all right? So check this out in verse um, 9. It says, Behold our shield, our God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in the courts, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And we know where the tents of wickedness can be. They can be in our heart. They can be in our city. They could be on a block. They could be a geographic address or location. Or they could be on our phones where we dwell. Tents of wickedness, pornography, uh, coveting people on social media, um, Envying people in our workplaces. These are tents of wickedness. This is the place that baits our flesh to not slide this way, but slide that way towards self-sufficiency and lust and greed and appetites, right? He's saying it's better to be in your house, God. 
It's better to be in the place of dwelling and delighting in you than in the tents of wickedness. You have much more to offer. You have much more satisfying gifts to offer. Verse 11 says, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. I love the picture of sun. Don't you love when sun comes out, Chicagoans? Now it's just, just me. Nobody else has the temptation to move south. Okay, all right. I love the idea of sun because when sun comes out, almost everybody loves it. It, it, it blankets the place. God is a sun. He's a grower, right? He's also a shield. He's a shield. He's a protector. We don't get this that much because we're not in battle. Maybe some of our veterans here may understand this more than I would. But when something is coming at you, you want somebody in front of you that's strong, right? Now, we're all in battle here. We all are in a spiritual battle here. Uh, we were walking a, a couple through a really hard time this week, and um, this brother confessed. He said, I confess. Now I'm seeing it clear. I mean, I am a, I'm in a tense spiritual warfare right now, a battle right now. And so what did we do? We prayed. We prayed for the shield of God, the covering of his angels, the protected spirit. Well, God is this. He, he provides this for us. The Lord bestows favor and honor. He takes unfavorable human beings. Have you ever been unhonorable in your life? Is any of us worthy of honor if we ran the film of our life on the screen right now? Who would say, I want to be the first? Not me. But what does he give us here? I'm going to make you favorable. I'm going to give you favor. I'm going to make you honorable. I'm going to make you the men and women, the son and daughter that I really created to be. It's going to be a journey. But I'm going to make you into a person that is honorable. And all over that and all our failings and all our valleys and ups and downs, he still sees us with the most honorable one, which is who? Jesus Christ. He gave us true favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk. This is funny, especially in the light of um, limping, who walk uprightly. <laughs> right. How do you walk uprightly by limping? <laughs> Recognize the limp and he'll prop you up. And your strength will be on him and you'll give glory to him and you won't be self-sufficient. And you'll say, God, in my weakness, you were my strength. That will make you walk uprightly. That will bring in favor into your life. That will bring blessing into life. That will start taking your Rubik's Cube and making sense of things. See, a daily walk that leans on him makes you walk uprightly and that has real effects for your life. And this is why I said this is so key. When our heart argues against God, when our heart wants other things, no, there are real consequences for saying I want the gifts of wickedness. No, the gifts of wickedness will not give you favor, will not make you honorable. They will make you like the psalmist said in Psalm 73, I am a beast before you. I am a dog before you. I do not even recognize myself because I lusted after all the things of the world. It made that psalmist in Psalm 73 say, man, when the further I get from God, the less human dignity, the less humane, the less lover, the less good things of life, honorable things of life I become. Do we know this? I know this. Have you ever said, I hate who I'm becoming? Well, here's some hope. Slide toward the limp. Slide toward saying, God, clean me, man. Clean me, man. Take all my rooms. I want to delight in you again. 
I want to delight in you more than any other thing. I'm going to direct my delight in you today. I'm going to cry out to you for strength today. I'm going to look to you for day. I'm going to say how lovely you are, God. Aside from all these, 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 these tents of wickedness, I'm going to say, no, you're the loveliest. I would, I would want to be a servant in your house. Now, think of the prodigal son that said, the servant made his way back, and he said, the, the disobedient son said, uh, at least I'll be a servant in his house, right? And what does the father do? A servant? No, no, you're a son. You're a son. So here it says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than in the tents of wickedness. God doesn't even allow us just to be a doorkeeper. He says, when you run back to me, whether you know me and you straight away, or whether you don't know me and you come to me for forgiveness for the first time, I will not make you a doorkeeper, a slave, a servant. I'm going to make you a son and a daughter for all eternity. You don't have to earn your way. Wash the dishes for a while and I'll make you a manager. God is not our employer. He's our father. And we can never earn our wages anyways. For the wages of sin are what? Death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. We walk uprightly. We have a favored, blessed life, even through the trials, when we walk with God. The lie of independence, the lie of dwelling in tents of wickedness, inside or outside, will not bring you favor for this life or beyond. We see examples of that. In our own life and in the world's life, we see where sin takes us. We see where sin is taking the world. It's not pretty. You can walk in this valley of Baca, this broken earth, with a new faith in God, and that will change your life from the inside out. And that will lead you, as it says, those whose highways are led to Zion. What that means is those whose, whose pathways are led toward the city of God. You know there's going to be a new city in the earth that comes? And as we walk through the valley right now, our whole life can be a valley. But there's going to be a city that's perfect. And on that path, you can be favored and uh, God will bestow favor on his children as they walk uprightly, limping in him toward the new Jerusalem, the hope of heaven. Another thing here, I don't know how how deep you've been in the word. I, I don't know everybody individually here. If you've lost sight of the future, man, read first and second Thessalonians. Read the book of Revelation. Tell me what you really want in the future, because the future is coming. The future is coming. And it does have a split in the paths. It has a split in what you can hope in or what you can be afraid of. For, the, for children of God who have found forgiveness and faith in Jesus Christ, through forgiveness, through faith in Jesus Christ, you become a son and a daughter that no matter how bad your valleys or trials get here, You have the indwelling God that says, keep going, keep walking, because there is going to be a perfect place. But along the way, I'll sustain you here. I'll give you gifts here. This is a psalm of journey. This is a truth of journey. And walking with God is not a one-day decision, a one-stop prayer, save me. No, it's a journey. It is a journey day by day. And what comes from this? Verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. 
So he just caps it off here. He said, look, let me boil all this down. You love Jesus more than you love everything else, and you let that be your argument against everything else, that you will love Jesus, that you will ask God for your love in Jesus to grow, and it boils down to this. It will give you trust. When you direct your delight toward God, when you direct your delight toward God, you will trust in God. When you fix your delight toward other things, you will not trust in God. And this connected to me. I, I texted Jorge about this yesterday. This blew my mind yesterday because God put a finger on my heart. And it didn't feel too good right away. But then it became a touch of grace. I kept asking. You know, there's a lot of big faith steps my family's taken. And I kept asking. I kept saying it to my wife. Man, I know right here I should trust God. But why, do not, why am I not trusting God right here? And through this psalm, God says, because you're not delighting in God. And when you delight in God, you see God for who he is. Now, I want to pause on this because it, it seems a little abstract. When you delight in God, delight flows from the person of God. Does this make sense? So picture God like this beautiful water fountain that every time you drink, it's always good, right? When you drink, what flows into you? Delight, right? And you look toward the fountain. You're like, man, this is an amazing fountain. This fountain gives me everything I need. This fountain satisfies my thirst, right? This, 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 and the other, right? This, that, and the other. It all comes from this fountain. When you stop drinking from the fountain and you maybe start drink from other sources, that soda pop and that junk food and that this and that and all this, right? You tend to not trust the fountain because are you looking at the fountain? Are you relying on the fountain? Are you seeing the fountain? No, right? And so this, this really took a, a different, I'm like, why does he say after all these things, he, he has not mentioned trust here before. Why does he, it seems so random. Well, when you direct your delight toward God, he dwells in you. He gives you strength in the journey. He gives you gifts, but all of that comes from the same source. It comes from the fountain. And when you go to that fountain, you learn to trust from where all those things, and more importantly, the, the thing from which it flows, the being from which it flows, the God from which it flows comes from. And so that's why I think he just sums it up. I think he like abrupt, abruptly stops and just says, man, all these things come from you as I journey with God, how beautiful you are. And you know, you know, you know what? Blessed is the person that just trusts and believes in God. Jesus emphasizes this too in the New Testament when, he, when the Pharisees who do all these things to try to please God and the crowds are like, what do you want us to do? What do you say we should do to please God? What does Jesus say? Believe. Believe. Because belief and trust in God has implications of a million different things. So you, let me give you a couple of applications. You sin. You know you're in sin. And you say, I'm going to make myself better. Then I can pray or then I can walk with God again. Belief says, no, believe I already paid for that sin. Give it up to me and walk, right? One is a belief in self. One is a belief in what God has done, what Jesus has done, right? There's a lot of applications for that. Um, um, 
I don't know where funding is going to come. I don't know where money is going to come from. I don't know, God, do you have my life in your hand? What, what passes from a lack of trust to trust? It's, it's belief that God is who he is. It's looking toward the fountain in the desert and saying, look, I'm in a desert, but the fountain has all I need. And it's God, right? He, he, he just... Blessed is this um, word that we can throw around, but really it means to be in a, a good place with the blesser, right? It means to be in relationship with God in a favored place as opposed to the other place. Is this making sense? So we are blessed people if you believe in Jesus because Jesus has put you in a blessed place under his identity before God. What he's saying is walk in that blessing. Walk in how that in every place in the journey applies. Don't go back to a place of unblessing, which I do have to say this. I have to draw this line. When you walk on your own and you don't want God, you do not walk in a blessed place. The function of the word blessing means there's something different here. Abraham was called blessed because of his faith. That made him different from Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other tribes, right? And it goes on. What is a blessed place? A blessed place is knowing God, relying on God, receiving everything God has for us in a day-by-day limp. And that is, that is really centered on delighting in him and believing in him to be everything we need. And not letting it just sit in our brains, but letting it come out in praise and song to him as he instructs us in the Psalms. I'm going to invite you to just close your eyes. I'm going to ask three questions. Maybe you need to weep to God. Maybe you need to call out to God. Maybe you need to come to know God through Jesus Christ and his forgiveness for the first time today. Maybe you need to get realigned. Maybe you need to confess some self-sufficiency in your life. Maybe you need to confess some sin that you're trying to make better in your life when God is like, let me make it better. I I don't know your situation. Young, middle-aged, elderly, we all need to learn to limp and rely on God. We sang it together today. Lord, I need you. And so I ask you these questions. Currently in your life, where are you directing your delight What gives you delight? Is it God, first of all, and then letting that flow into other things? Or is it other things and pushing off God kind of like a sidekick, an afterthought? Number two, currently, where or what or whom are you drawing your strength from? Is it your own self-sufficiency? Is it job security? Is it a relationship where you're putting all your emotion and investment into this person to give you worth? Is it in your own pride that says, man, I don't need God. I'm going to make myself better. I I don't need to confess that I'm needy. Where are you drawing your strength from? This is a daily thing. This is a weekly thing. What's God putting on your heart today as he counsels you to give something up to him and rely on his strength? And lastly, quite simply, are we trusting God? Would you say that we're trusting God as an individual today? Would you say we're trusting God as a family of faith today? Let the prayers come to your heart. God can direct them now and give them to him. It's going to allow for a little bit of silence.
little bit of opening to, to, to talk back to him as we've heard from him in his word.